This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm pleased to see you all here for today's event, which is part of the Herman P. and Sophia Taubman Endowed Symposia in Jewish Studies here at UC Santa Barbara. I'm Leonard Wallach, its uh, program coordinator, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to an event which marks a very special day in the life of this symposia. In the fall of 1997, which if you count backwards comes out to 18, we began this program, and it was in Campbell Hall that first day. It was an extraordinary beginning to what has become an extraordinary run of events lasting thus far uh, 18 years. So today, first and foremost, we celebrate the 18th birthday of the Taubman Symposia. For those of you who have followed its progress, over the last 18 years, We've played host to about 150 speakers, shown films, uh, done art exhibitions, all in the service of advancing an understanding of Jewish history, religion, culture, politics, identity, and doing so for an ecumenical audience, stressing, as we always do, the ways in which the Jewish experience resonates universally. We speak to students, faculty, staff, community members, and over the years we've reached literally hundreds of thousands of people here in Santa Barbara, and through the auspices of UCTV, approximately 3.5 million people who have downloaded our videos worldwide. Clearly, we may be a small operation, but we have a very large footprint. Today, it's my special opportunity to thank the board of directors of the Talbot Foundation for the reason that they are, as it turns out, deliberating today in Santa Barbara, and to say to them something of a personal nature, which is that I've had the opportunity to work with all of the board members for 18 years. It's been an extraordinary educational challenge for me and one that has contributed to the great, rich, and enduring success of this symposia. Thank you for your vision in helping establish us, and thank you for your engagement in making sure that we're uh, perpetuated for the future. Thank you. It's now my pleasure to call upon my colleague, Professor Richard Hecht, who teaches in the Department of Religious Studies and who all these years has served as the chair of our program committee, who will introduce our speaker. Richard? I, too, would uh, like to join uh, Dr. Wallach in welcoming you uh, to this event today. This is the first event in our Taubman Symposia for this academic year. Uh, the program committee has put together 
I think, an extraordinary program for you this year. And I hope that there will be many people from our community and the students and the faculty and staff here to take advantage of it. I'll give you just a tour of where we're going this year, all the riches of the program. Um, we're starting today, of course, in Israel, um, but we'll go to Poland, the Venetian ghetto. We'll uh, look at the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Uh, we'll look at secular and democratic life in Israel. Uh, we'll go to Jewish humor. Um, and we're going to meet one of the Mengele twins, the surviving Mengele twins. And finally, we'll examine the ranges of modern Orthodox thought. So it's an exciting program, and I hope I'll see many of you here. Today, we turn to marking the 20th anniversary of the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Almost from the very beginning of our Taubman Symposia, 18 years ago, we have been particularly interested in all matters relating to Israel. We have brought to our community, as many of you know, writers who are probing the soul of contemporary Israel, to its historians who have plotted the history and culture of the Jewish yeshuv, reaching all the way back to the pre-state period and under the British mandate, and also the political violence within Israel and the ways to strengthen Israel's democratic traditions. And there be, may be one or two of you in this audience who may recall that during the first year of our Taubman Symposia, we had the great fortune of listening to Leah Rabin. When the program committee determined that it wanted to mark the anniversary of uh, Prime Minister Rabin, there was only one person we wanted to remind us of his life and legacy and the full scope of the tragedy of his murder, Yoram Perry, our speaker of today. Many, uh, many of the reasons for why we would invite Professor Perry are evident in the program bulletin that you have before you and that you've probably read already, and I'm not going to repeat much of what is in that. However, I want to add just a word or two, simple word or two, about his numerous accomplishments. First, Professor Perry was born in Jerusalem and really grew up uh, in the city, um, took his uh, advanced education in the city. Um, uh, he completed high school in Jerusalem and then went on to his college and university education at the Hebrew University. His career has spanned three interrelated areas. He has had a career as a journalist, which took him to become the editor of Davar, the great Hebrew newspaper that was published from 1925 until 1996 and was associated with the labor movement in Israel. Its founding editor had been Burl Katzel-Nelson, and there were many extraordinary writers who contributed to the paper over the many years, including uh, the editorship of Zalman Shazar before he became president of the State of Israel. It also attracted some of the great poets and writers and political theorists and thinkers like Yossi Balin, um, um, Shmuel Yosef Agnon, Nathan Alterman, uh, Ben, uh, Don Ben Amotz, uh, Leah Goldberg, Chaim Guri, 
uh, uh, Yuri Svi Greenberg, and Dove Sedan. That's only to mention a very small number of the great writers who wrote for Devar. Second, um, Yoram Perry uh, has had no less significant career in politics, and you see all of his uh, political accomplishments. Um, he became, among other things, the spokesman of the Labor Party and was a political advisor to Prime Minister Rabin. Third and finally, he has had a distinguished academic career where he has published extensively and now is the editor of, is of the Israel Studies Review Journal, which is one of the most important journals in Israel Studies. Now, before we welcome him, I'd like to tell you how we're going to do questioning this afternoon. At about 3.30 or 3.40 maybe at the latest, uh, we're going to distribute to you uh, cards for you to write questions on, those cards. And when you're finished writing your question, if you'll just pass them to your right in that direction, they will be picked up at the end of the presentation uh, and brought forward so that Professor Perry can respond to the questions which um, uh, we find among your questions. So without any further ado, may you join me in welcoming uh, Yoram Perry. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Leonard, for inviting me to this important event. Uh, I've heard about it a uh, long time ago, but I didn't know that it's the 18th anniversary. And what I didn't know is that Leah Rabin was here, one of the first speakers. I wish we could talk today about Jewish or Israeli humor, but it's too late to change now the topic. Uh, so we'll stick to the topic that uh, we planned. For you in the United States, uh, political assassination is unfortunately a well-known phenomenon. Four presidents were assassinated, Lincoln, Kennedy, Garfinkel, McKinley. There were, there were more than 20 assassination attempts. Reagan is the last uh, case that I remember. In Israel, young Israel of 67 years old, it never happened before the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, and therefore, the event created such a shock, bewilderment, and anxiety when it happened 20 years ago. It happened on Motsai Shabbat, the conclusion of, of Shabbat, 4th of November 1995, at 9.20, when they Israel largest, one of the largest rallies under the banner of no to violence, yes to peace, ended in the center square of Tel Aviv with a keynote speech by Prime Minister Rabin. Violence is eating away the foundations of Israel democracy, the shy 73 years old Prime Minister declared. It must be condemned, denounced, and isolated. It is not the way of the state of Israel. The rally must send a message to the Israeli people, to the Jewish people throughout the world, to many, many in the Arab states and the Arab world, and the world at large, that the, that the people of Israel want peace, and they support peace. The words that were 
presented by the Prime Minister Rabin are really resonant today or in the last two weeks when we hear about a new wave of violence that engulfs Israel, both Israel itself and the territories. Uh, by the way, only three hours ago, there was another assassination attack in, in Beersheba. Twelve people were injured. One already died. Probably the next one will die in the next, the next hour. So it, it is going on. The rally ended with a song, the Song of Peace. And when the song was over, Rabin went down from the podium. Upon reaching his car in, at 9.42... A young religious student, Igal Amir, approached him from the back and shot him at point black. Two hollow point bullets penetrated his body, and 30 minutes later, he was dead. Since then, more than two, pro, 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 more, almost three million people were born in Israel who never saw Rabin and didn't know much about Rabin. And uh, in the last public opinion poll that was done f before a few days ago, it seemed that very many of them almost haven't heard the name. I'm sure that many people among Jews, younger, the younger people outside of Israel, know very little about Rabin and his assassination. So before I start talking, I want to show you 10 minutes of a film that really summarizes the history of the man and the assassination and the events that took place since then. Yitzhak Rabin was my partner and my friend. I admired him and I loved him very much. Because words cannot express my true feelings, let me just say Shalom Haver. Goodbye, friend. I wish to thank each and every one of you who have come here today to take a stand against violence and for peace. I was a military man for 27 years. I fought so long as there was no chance for peace. I believe that there is now a chance for peace, a great chance. This is a course which is fraught with difficulties and pain. But the path of peace is preferable to the path of war. Yitzhak Rabin lived the history of Israel. Through every trial and triumph, the struggle for independence, the wars for survival, the pursuit of peace, and all he served on the front lines. At an age that most youngsters are struggling to unravel the secrets of mathematics and the mysteries of the Bible. At the tender age of 16, I was handed a rifle so that I could defend myself. That was not my dream. I wanted to be a water engineer. 
I thought being a water engineer was an important profession in the parched Middle East. I still think so today. I had a platoon of teenagers. With no replacements left to fight, I had to send these kids into battle. When they arrived, they were ambushed. Over half these kids were killed. I do not remember how many were injured. <laughs> I had never thought that a moment would come like this when I would grieve the loss of a brother, a colleague and a friend, a man, a soldier who met us on the opposite side of a divide man I came to know because I realized as he did that we have to cross over the divide establish a dialogue and strive to leave for those who follow us a legacy that is worthy of them For years, I secretly harbored the dream that I might play a part not only in gaining Israel's independence, but in restoring the Western Wall to the Jewish people, making it the focal point of our hard-won independence. Now that dream had come true, and suddenly I wondered why I, of all men, should be so privileged. I knew that never again in my life would I experience quite the same peak of elation. For me personally, the Six-Day War was the high point of a military career. אתה היית עמוד האש שלפני המחנה, ועכשיו נותרנו רק מחנה, לבד, בחושך, וכל כך קר לנו ועצוב. אבל איך תנסה לנחם עם שלם, או לשתף אותו בכאב הפרטי שלך, כשסבתא לא מפסיקה לבכות? I am sure that despite all the irritating arguments, it would be difficult to find among the couples that I know a better pair than us. I am certain that there was great luck in my life when I married you. We have been through so much together in times so critical for all of us that it seems as if the content of our lives could fill the lives of scores of families. Many kisses to you and to Yuval. Yitzchak.
I was in a spot. If only I could dance even poorly. If only someone would get in ahead of me and invite Mrs. Ford onto the dance floor. But miracles of that nature do not occur at the White House. I'm sorry, Mrs. Ford, but I simply don't know how to dance. Not a step. Have no fear, Mr. Prime Minister. When I was a young woman, I used to teach dance. And I protected my toes from men far less skillful than you. Come along. Dr. Kissinger, himself no great dancer, came to my rescue and managed to get me off the dance floor. If he had never done anything else for Israel, I would still be eternally grateful to Kissinger for that small mercy. Allow me to make personal note. I, military ID number 30743, retired general in the Israel Defense Forces, consider myself to be a soldier in the army of peace today. Today we are embarking on a battle which has no dead and no wounded, no blood and no anguish. This is the only battle which is a pleasure to wage, the battle for peace. נאום האחרון, לא יהיו יותר. חמש דקות לפני שחלאת האדם ירה בך, שרת את שיר השלום מתוך נייר שנתנו לך בבית החולים, אחרי שהרופאים והאחיות בחרו, נתנו לי את הנייר שמצאו בכיס הז'קט שלך. אני רוצה לקרוא עכשיו כמה מילים מתוך הנייר הזה, אבל קשה לי. הדם שלך, יצחק, הדם שלך מכסה על המילים המודפסות. דמך על נייר שיר השלום. should not let the land flowing with milk and honey become a land flowing with blood and tears. Don't let it happen. If all the partners to the peacemaking do not unite against the evil angels of death 
by terrorism, all that will remain are color snapshots, empty mementos. Rivers of hatred will overflow again and swamp the Middle East. of the event on Israeli society. Uh, the national bereavement took a whole month. Children, young people came to the square for the whole month and sat there all day and night saying song, etc. But very soon, it evaporated. Uh, so the first question that we have to ask ourselves is what was the impact of the assassination on the history of Israel? The debate over the relationship between leadership and history will probably continue to, end, to, 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 to the end of times. Was Thomas Carlyle right in claiming that history is the biography of great men? Or was it Rosa Luxemburg, the famous uh, radical Jewish women, woman in Germany by, the name, by, by, the, by um, um, Rabin's mother was called was called uh, Red Rosa as well, uh, not related to, to Rosa, Rosa Luxembourg. It was, was she more accurate when she contended that the leader is like a foam on the sea, which catches our eyes, but is carried on the backs of the waves? And it is the people who hold the leader up and are more important. Ten years ago, I wrote a book uh, on the assassination called uh, Brothers... Um, I forgot the name of my book. Uh, Brother at Arm, the, the Arabian assassination and the uh, cultural conflict war in Israel. And then I argued that it's too early to say what was the impact of the assassination on the history of Israel. Today, I'm sure that it had a major impact. And the first one is in the pure political level, the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, and the Arab world as well. Immediately after the assassination, Peres took over and became prime minister, but within a year he lost the elections and Netanyahu took over, Netanyahu and the Likud took over. In fact, since then, Israel is dominated by, by the right-wing nationalist camp, rather the left-wing pro-peace uh, camp. And indeed, the, process, uh, the peace process was derailed. 
There were ups and downs, but if you look at the entire period of 20 years, you can argue that, uh, that uh, it wasn't really the intention of the Israeli leadership, official leaders, to reach an agreement which will need to compromise, serious compromise in the West Bank. I'm not going to talk today to analyze the conflict, and therefore I'm not going to talk about the Arabs or the Palestinians. I'm concentrating only on Israeli society. So if you will hear some criticism, it doesn't mean that all the onus is on the Israelis, but I'm analyzing the Israeli part of the, of the game. And what I'm arguing is that Netanyahu really came from a school of thought who was not ready to give up territories for peace, unlike Rabin. Rabin was a pragmatic person. He thought that Israel's danger comes from Libya and Iran and Iraq with nuclear arms, and therefore we can compromise on the hills of Judea and Samaria. That was not the perception of Netanyahu. And if he, if he spoke for the last 20 years about, about uh, two-state solution, it was just for diplomatic purposes. It was tactics. It wasn't really the core of his belief. Why do I think that uh, Rabin could have reached peace? Because of several topics. So number one, Arafat trusted him, very much so. So much so that the only picture, the only photo that you will find of Arafat without his kafia is when he came for a visit of condolences to Rabin's home and he sat on the floor next to Leah Rabin. The only time that he did it out of respect to Rabin. And when you see the face, you understand why he didn't do it in other cases. Uh, I heard only this week a very interesting comment by someone who used to work with uh, James Baker, your Secretary of State. And he told me that Baker told him that he thought that had Bush, the father, won the elections and Baker continued to work with him and Rabin was in power, we could have reached peace. It's a, it's a new piece of information that I didn't know before. So really, Rabin understood this, the serious threats to Israel and therefore, he thought that we can reach compromise and, re and, uh, and, and pay with territories to see an, a, 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 an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. And indeed, he reached peace with, with, with Jordan. So this is number one. He, the entire line of history has changed because of the assassination. Number two is violence. Don't forget that the, con the, the event the two place in, the, in what is called today Rabin Square, was on that issue, the level of violence. The level of violence began to grow before the assassination. And after the assassination, most Israelis thought that the shock will change the course of events and the level of violence will decline. It didn't happen. On the contrary, level of violence went up dramatically. I don't have time to, to give you very many details of the violence that does occur today in Israeli streets. I'm not talking about violence between Arabs and Israelis, the attacks by Palestinians, but Israeli Jews who are attacking Arabs or Jews who are attacking Jews. The level of violence went up dramatically. Just one example or two examples. The president, our present president, Rivlin, who came from the Likud, spoke in a very soft way about the need to, to understand the other, he was immediately described as a traitor. That's verbal violence. The uh, president of the Supreme uh, Court, Aaron Barak, uh, 
had to have bodyguards because of, the, of, of some threats to his life. So level of violence uh, really grew up dramatically, and is, I think that it, really, it, it is because of the, of the assassination. Uh, if you want to have better proof for that, you will find that when you ask the Israelis, what should you do if you do not agree with the government's policies? About 20% are willing to take illegal actions. If I think that the government is wrong, and mainly about the conflict, relations with the Palestinians, the territories, etc., I will take illegal measures. Out of these 20%, about half of them say that violence is also a kosher mean if I agree, do not agree with the, the government. So uh, no wonder that in the latest public opinion poll, which took place only two days ago, 70% of the Israelis said that they are expecting another political assassination in Israel. 70%. But Rabin was assassinated twice, not only once. Once it was two, 20 years ago, both his policy, the man and the policy. The second time was the assassination of his memory. The attempt to create a memory, to commemorate the legacy of, of the, that particular person, so important and so interesting, failed. There are hundreds of names of streets, hospitals, schools, parks, uh, that have the name Rabin. But beyond that, the commemoration lost its core meaning. Again, the latest public opinion poll. 20% of the Israelis do not know who was the assassinator, the assassin of Rabin. 16% argue today that it was not Igal Amir. Though he admitted there are films, there was a film taken showing him doing that, and yet, so you have altogether a third of the Israeli people who do not agree with the fact that Rabin was assassinated or assassinated by, by Amir. By the way, if you look at the right-wing bloc in Israel, 50% of them belong to that school of thought. Uh, the Israel Democracy Institute has done a very deep research lately and the, half of the Israelis say that Rabin did not have any legacy. They were asked, what is the most important event in Israel's history that is related to the Israeli democracy? Can you imagine how many people said uh, the assassination? Only 3%. So you see that the core of the legacy, namely to make peace with the Arabs, disappeared. It exists only within a small part of the Israeli population. Those who do commemorate him, and in schools it is being done, speak about the fighter, the warrior, his achievement in the War of Independence, his achievement in the War of 67. They spoke about the need for national unity, they speak about the, uh, the person. They make him a wonderful grandfather, a very nice person. He wasn't such a nice person. I know him well. I knew him well. He was very shy, very closed. 
but he was, he was a great leader. They don't talk about his leadership. What happened? Probably he heard me saying that he wasn't a, ni- a nice man. <laughs> so so uh, there was a process of depoliticization of, of, the, of the commemoration and the memory of Rabin. And the reason is the deep split within Israeli society. Israeli society is split since 1967 particularly since 1973, not only on the question of the territories and the peace, but on the much deeper issue, and that is our collective identity. What are we? Who are we? What sort of nation we should be? What is our worldview? What should be our relations with the Jewish people outside Israel, with the entire world, with our neighbors? These are the questions beyond the territorial issue. Uh, and therefore, uh, the split could not be mended with one event. The contrary, the split is even deeper than it was previously. We don't have much time to go into this cultural warfare, but I want to give you a few points about, about it. Israel is divided between, and it's very rough and superficial analysis, maybe in the question and answers, I can go in, into more details. But Israel is divided between two schools of thought. One, and I found a wonderful explanation in American uh, politics, a book that was published uh, some years ago by John Sparling and others called The Great Divide, Retro and Metro America. It's not only the Democrats and the Republicans, it's not the red and the blue, it's the cultures that exist on both seashores, both the east and the west. This is the metro. And the culture that is prevailing at the center of the United States, that's the retro. So I use that terms to explain better the Israeli split between these two cultural uh, camps. The retro thing describes Israel in terms of ethno-nationalism. Who belongs to the Israeli collectivity? Jews. Blood. The other school of thought, the metro, says, oh no, there are 20% non-Jews living in Israel. They are citizens of Israel. They are, they are as e- equal to the Jews. I'm not talking about the Palestinians who live in the occupied territories. I'm talking about the Israeli citizens who are non- non-Jews. They are part of us. And therefore, the definition of Israeli nationalism should be political one. Whoever has an Israeli passport or ID card is an Israeli. Second, what is more important, the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, or the state of Israel? For the Zionist movement, since the establishment of the state, it was the state. Ben-Gurion was a statist uh, supporter, etatist for those of you who study political science. Since Begin took over, the land of Israel became more important. So, so much important that many people on the, on the retro group would say that if a majority of members of Knesset decide to give away part of the land of Israel for peace, it cannot be done. They don't, have the, they don't have the moral right to do so. 
It's not, the Knesset is not above the supreme, supreme law of Israel, which was, which was the law that was given by God. And God gave us the land, and therefore we cannot give it up. So the land is more important. While the metro school of thought says, no, it's the state. A third element is part- particularism, Jewish particularism or universalism. The metro school of thought says we should look to the world. We should adopt a humanitarian, human, humanistic uh, perceptive about the world. The other school of thought, the retro says, no, 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 we are different than all the others. The Jews are different. Many of them will say, not only different, but above the others. Uh, But if not above, different, and we have to emphasize that. And the last thing, or maybe two two more points, one is the concept about time. The retro concept says the time is a circle. What what happened in the past happens today and will happen tomorrow. Shamir, the prime minister who followed Begin, used to say, the sea is the same sea, the Arabs are the same Arabs. What happened in the past happens today, it will happen tomorrow. This is the fate of the Jewish people. And look at what happened in the past, and therefore the Holocaust becomes such a strong symbol. While the Metro School of Thought says, no, time goes forward. Things do change. Germany and France were not such in, in such good relations for so many hundred, tens of years, if not more, and they behave differently. Rabin used that concept when he discussed the issue of time. And therefore, while the retro believe that the conflict between us and the Arabs is a conflict that will stay forever, the metro concept said, no, there is a way to change it. And indeed, Israel signed peace treaties with the Egyptians, with Jordanians, and was on, on the way to sign a peace treaty with the Palestinians. So you see that the, uh, the, this, this, the, the, the difference between these two schools of is very, very deep. And what happened since the assassination is that the retro school of thought became much stronger, much, much stronger. So much that the, the metro school of thought today, really, you, 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 you find it very little. You find it in Haaretz. How many people read Haaretz? Very many people in the United States. But you know that the number of readers of Haaretz in Israel is the same as the number of people who read Haaretz when the state was established 67 years ago. About 67, 60, 70,000 people. Then we were a million, now we are more than 8 million. So that camp uh, it has, has really weakened and particularly became very quiet. I want to end, and I have to tell you that the fact that this metro camp has become the, the weaker one doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And if you look at different developments in the last uh, few years, you'll, f- you'll see how strong it is. For example, I spoke about the president, Rivlin. He's a liberal. People didn't expect him to be liberal because he came from, from the Herut party, and he was really a, uh, a very close to Netanyahu and his friends. Uh, the Israeli um, Academy, the, uh, the Israeli press is very open 
very diverse, very pluralistic, very critical, much more than here. You'll find more criticism of Israeli policies in Israeli newspapers than here, or among Jews here. Uh, the uh, the, relig- the um, judicial system is very strong. The Supreme Court is very strong. And only two weeks ago, when the wave of uh, the new wave of violence began, and uh, what the minister of, of uh, one of the ministers said that we should look how the judges, what the judges do to pe- to Palestinians. Who are, uh, who are caught for throwing stones. And if they don't use harsh measures, they should not be promoted. The, the president, the, the present president of the Supreme Court, uh, Miriam Naor, came out immediately and criticized him in a way that I never heard an Israeli judge talking about an Israeli minister. So the Israeli military is not militaristic. Only three weeks ago, or a month ago, it was revealed that Netanyahu, the prime minister, and Barak, the defense minister, were planning to attack Iran and could not do so because the Israeli, the Israeli military and defense establishment people said no, particularly the chief of staff. So the Israeli military is very, very... You, you cannot describe the Israeli military as militaristic. All in all, this camp did not disappear. Uh, it, it's strong, but it is underneath the surface. And as long as the conflict will continue, and naturally as, as long as the conflict is um, enhanced, supported, by the Palestinians and the Arab states, and as I said, I'm not going to go into that, naturally the reaction of the Israelis is is similar, and therefore we don't see so much antagonism, uh, we we don't see so much expressions of the power of the metro camp. And as long as the conflict will continue, the domestic conflict between these two camps will continue as well. Hopefully, the uh, legacy of Rabin one day will win, because without that, I don't think that uh, our future will be very positive. After all, those who believe in the one-state solution, and there are some people, the Israeli Israeli ambassador today in Washington believes in one-state solution. The new Israeli ambassador to the UN believes in one-state solution. The new Israeli ambassador to, to uh, Brazil believes in one-state solution. It's the first time since 1967 that the Israeli ambassadors privately have this position. Uh, so we, we saw in the last two weeks what will happen if the two-state solution will disappear and will be doomed to live in one-state solution. It will, bri- it will bring a, a, uh, a deeper conflict a, um, a civil war between regular individuals, not organized in terrorist groups, but just people who are fed up or with the situation and take a knife or a screwdriver and go to the street to, to, to kill the other. So I, I didn't lose my, my hope. Uh, as uh, I was presented, I was born in Jerusalem 
and my, my grand-grand-grandparents came to Israel in 1865, and the family was survived in 1929 because there were, when there was the first major attack of Palestinian um, terrorists against Jews who lived in East Jerusalem, and my family was saved because of our friend who was a Palestinian. Yesterday there was a major demonstration in Jerusalem by Jews and Arabs calling for peace rather than war. So I don't think that we should lose hope, and I hope that, that it will not take too long to see that the legacy of Rabin really will be fulfilled. Thank you very much. I'd like to ask a question about how you structured this kulturkampf, uh, this cultural war in Israel, because the one struggle that you seem to have left out is the struggle between the secular people, or let us put it this way, the modern religious people and the secular people versus the Haredim, or the, as the journalists call them, the ultra-Orthodox. So where do they belong in your model of conflict? One of the reasons that the, the assassination was a splitting factor in Israeli society was the fact that the assassin was a religious guy. He was a student from Bar-Ilan University, a religious guy. So immediately there were two attacks. The left attacked the right, and the seculars attacked the, the religious people in Israel. And both the right and the religious people in Israel say, why do you, why do you take us? We're against uh, such things. We are against uh, killing a, pr a prime minister. Why do you take us? And they, they were in the defensive. So much so that they didn't participate in the commemoration. For example, Netanyahu did not come to the commemoration. And Rabin, Leah Rabin didn't shake his hand when she saw him first time when there was an official commemoration in the Knesset. The split was so deep. In generally speaking, the right, the political right, is more on the retro than the metro. Generally speaking, the religious people are more uh, in the retro than the metro. But it goes beyond that. And I was looking for a better, deeper analysis that will not put the blame on religious people as such, or right-wingers as such, but look into the deeper cultural uh, level. And therefore, I try to find, to find different terms, and I found this retro and metro, which I think is, explains the, the, the divide. Well, you know, we have a number of very good questions. I, I've only gone through the first few, and they're all really very great and good questions. So, so, I'll, show, so I'll answer shortly. Yeah, answer shortly. Um, but um, so let me go with the first question. Um, uh, and this this question reads: Can't we get the female youth of Israel and of the Palestinians to demand peace for the sake of their children's future? Something both sides vitally have in common. I wanted to start the answer with oi, and the oi has to do with the year 2000. The, you remember Israel and the Palestinians negotiated peace in the year 2000, Camp David Accord, it broke down. 
And immediately after that, the second intifada started, which was a bloody intifada. The Israelis saw things that they didn't see in the last two weeks. People did not go to coffee places. People could not go to the university because the, the cafeteria in the university was bombed in Jerusalem. It was really terrible. And it took five years. The bloody intifada really had a major impact on the Israeli youth. So a million young Israelis who grew up from the year 2000 until 2010 and saw the Palestinian violence move to the right. And there are, today there are more right-winger poli- nationalists among the younger generation of Israel than among, among, than among the grown-ups. The same applies to the Palestinians. They lived under the Israeli control. They don't know how it is to, be, to live freely. So they are more hawkish, more extremist than the parents. And therefore, I don't think that uh, wisdom will come from that generation unless something dramatic will happen. I have another question, uh, which reads, in light of your analysis of the deep cultural split, what should American policy be towards Israel? Wow. The first was oi, now wow. Uh, American policy, not, not, not American Jews. No, it says, Ameri- it says American policy. I think that the U.S. should be more involved. Unfortunately, the last attempt failed with... Uh, with your uh, Secretary of State, Kerry. Uh, previous attempts fail as well. Uh, there are some very deep reasons why the, the U.S. policies were not as efficient as they were. It, it will take too long to answer that question. I do believe that the U.S. has to be more involved and can be more involved and can use both the carrot and the stick to bring both sides to the table. Another question I think was on uh, many of our thoughts, and that is, given this um, uh, wave of, of violence at the present time, do you think that that opens any avenue for peace? The, pre- the, the present wave will not bring a change because of the terrible developments in the Middle East. We all have to remember that. Uh, if there were many Israelis who were willing to give back territories in the past, for example, the Golan Heights, today no Israeli will be, 5% of the Israelis will say, yes, give the Golan Heights to the, Syri- to the Syrians. Who in Syria? Assad? One of the other groups? How can we give back the territories for peace? And if we give back territories in, on the West Bank, are we sure that Jordan will remain a strong, solid state and will not fall into the hands of of uh, terrorist organizations. So the position of the Israelis have become much harsher because of the, develop, the collapse of the state system in the Middle East, because of the developments in the Middle East, and therefore I do not think that change will occur today. Once the, the, this wave of violence will decline, and it won't be less than four, five, six years, then we might think again of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, another question is asked by two people, uh, two different people, uh, and it, uh, I'll read both questions because I think the emphasis is a little different. The first question reads, 
Even centrist Israelis don't think the left offers any credible plans or paths to peace today. Who do you see emerging in the pro-peace camp to inherit Rabin's uh, legacy, and what does their plan look like? And then the shorter question, which I think is the same, reads, can the political left win the elections in Israel? The political left cannot win the elections because of the demographic changes. We have more ultra-Orthodox today than were in the past. We have the younger generation, as I said, who were educated in the last 20 years under the impression that the Palestinians are not willing to make any compromise. We have the Russian uh, or the former Soviet Union immigrants, about a million people, who are very nationalistic. Uh, very capitalistic on one hand, but very nationalistic on the other. So we do not, we, the, 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 and, and we have the Mizrahi, the, the Oriental Jews, who, are, who tend to be more to the right than to the left on, on, uh, on the issue of, of the territories and peace. So if you look at the public opinion in Israel, demography plays for the right. Uh, and the left will not be able to, to win unless the right will fall. Now, we political scientists know that usually it's not the opposition that wins the elections, it's the government that falls down. And uh, that could happen. Some people might change their position, and there are people on the right, on, at the middle, who might join forces with the left of center to create a new coalition. So it's not doomed, but uh, it, it, it really co- needs a dramatic change, dramatic events that will take place within Israel. Well, I think we've come to the end of this wonderful afternoon with you, Yoram, and um, if you'll allow me to express our gratitude to you uh, for coming here. Thank you very much, Yoram. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming and for your wonderful questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.